Joe Biden became the first American president to visit Israel at a time of war as the world waits and international pressure mounts over Israel's next move. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. I'm Anit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Um, wherever Israelis so happy to see a plane land in Ben Gurion Airport, like they were this week with a visit, uh, short uh, yet important uh, visit by uh, the President of the United States. You mentioned this, the first American president to come here in time of war, um, and really just a very clear signal on where the United States stands, not only in its support of Israel, but also, I think, signaling to the region. Uh, in the words of Joe Biden, right, any any country or anyone trying to use this opportunity uh, to strike Israel again, don't. And I think that Israelis um, really, this really resonated with them. Uh, plus, obviously, uh, an aid package, an unprecedented aid package to Israel, all extremely important in this uh, very tough time. Yeah, I mean, not the main thing, but from where I was watching it, I, I just thought it was a remarkably effective use of presidential leadership. And you know, apart from the fact that he does have this sort of faltering manner because of his age and everything, I think he just gets these things very right. And what struck me was, first of all, two things. The 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 experience he has with mourning and grief he deployed in Israel, his hour and a half or more, maybe more, with survivors of the October 7th attacks, with families of hostages, he spoke about it on his way home to reporters on, on Air Force One saying that people who've been through traumatic experiences do find it helpful to be with someone else who has had suffered, even not in a similar way, but just who holds them and who, is, who has gone through something. And he speaks from his own experience of personal grief. But related to that, there was, a, to me, it seemed a deep emotional intelligence in how he handled this visit because he understood something which I think is just true of Israel and Israelis, which is, if you have a message to deliver to Israel, first, you need to say that you love and care about Israel, that its sorrow is your sorrow. You say that first before you then come in with the advice the candid friend. If you want to be the candid friend when it comes to Israel, be the friend first and do the candor next. And that is what Joe Biden is. Is this about the president and the country because... or about this conversation on the podcast? I'm just wondering. <laughs> no, it's well, in a way, yes, it's about how outsiders talk to Israel. But I, I just was, you know, I'm not going to take the bait so early on. Um, I, it seemed to me that he got that right because his public statements were affection, solidarity, we're with you, we're going to do what required the two aircraft carriers, all of that. But between the lines, certainly privately, but also actually even in his public statements, just as he's leaving, he says, we went through 9-11, don't make our mistakes. We acted in a state of kind of rage and we made some mistakes. And I thought that was really an important message 
He was offering, but he managed to wrap it in solidarity and affection. And I think therefore it may, I hope, but it may get heeded that plea for calm, considered, deliberate was the word he used to act deliberately with deliberation. I thought he, it's generally good advice. It seemed to me peculiarly well tailored to the audience he was addressing, namely Israel and Israelis. It's interesting. I noticed the exact same line, and I I took it out just before our recording today. He said, I caution this, while you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. And while we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Uh, And I agree that that is a very important line in what he was trying to say. Look, we need to understand that there is a fundamentally different a worldview happening in Israel now. Remember, this is a country that always said we will defend ourselves by ourselves. Obviously, we have uh, uh, aid from the United States. But what is happening now is that there is an active hand on the helm, which is the American hand. I mean, when you think of the fact not only of Joe Biden's visit, but the fact that Tony Blinken, uh, the Secretary of State, was sitting in a meeting of the cabinet, of of the war cabinet set up in Israel, and he actually was sitting right next to him, and they were working together on how to phrase uh, the humanitarian aid to uh, the Gaza Strip, which means, we'll get to that later, but the humanitarian corridors and the uh, aid from Egypt coming in, this is all working together. It looks like it's more an Israeli-American operation than just an Israeli one. And I think that's very uh, important for Israelis. It's very reassuring for Israelis. But also, it is a very warm hug that says, this is also us restraining you. If you tried to do something that we are not exactly satisfied with, we will let you know. And let's see Israel trying to say no to the United States now that it has so much skin in the game. Uh, so that is, that is the, I think, the, the operative part of the very, the important part of, of this visit. Yeah, I thought, I think the almost the physical move that you've described there uh, is right, which is it is that bear hug where you grip the person so tightly they can't move. And that was, I think that in a way distills the point I was making. It seems to me very, very shrewd. And people, uh, who are looking at this superficially, uh, particularly people who are very critical of Israel, went, oh, there's the Americans, they're now complicit. Look, they're actually in the room at the war cabinet. That just shows they are hand in glove. Misunderstanding that in a way, as mm. somebody else put it, Israel is almost, be- you know, the Americans are almost babysitting, you know, Israel. They're sitting in the war cabinet going, we're here to make sure you don't do anything that you or we might regret. So I think that was a um, big part of it. Right, but also signaling to the world, if you attack Israel, anyone who tries to attack is, is attacking us, the United States. So that's giving a very absolutely, big it's both sort of you know support, right? It's massively. I mean, it's both messages at once: two aircraft carriers, all of that. But we also we're not giving you know a, a complete blank check, but we're doing it in a smart way, and that's why the quote you pulled out there from Joe Biden invoking 9-11. So we're saying we absolutely agree this is a huge attack on you. Of course, we're shoulder to shoulder to you with you, but rage isn't the the right um, guide. Don't let plan. rage be the guiding the the battle plan. Don't be consumed by it. And he's speaking there as somebody who was obviously an active politician in the era of 9-11, but also there is a human dimension. He's saying that we all, we, you know, he is himself wrestled with grief and he's saying don't be consumed by it. I think, you know, 
uh, I've, so I've, this is, as I said, not the main point, but if Joe Biden was more vigorous and, you know, did not have that sort of faltering personal manner, people would be talking about him as an extraordinarily effective operator in situations like this, because I think he read the um, situation right and um, pitched it just right in dealing with, you know, as we've talked about on the podcast a lot, what is not a straightforward relationship for him, him and Netanyahu. They, you know, he hadn't, he's never sat to, with him in the White House in, during this term of Netanyahu's premiership. Nevertheless, he managed to get to this place, which is quite nuanced, and yet the right place probably for both sides to be in. So, um, yeah, I think that was effective. As you and I speak now at 4pm Israel time on Thursday, um, the world is still waiting for the assumed, presumed ground invasion of Gaza by Israel. Mm -hmm. Some people wondering if almost between the lines of Biden's remarks is maybe don't do that, do something different. You tell me what is the sort of state of play where you are in terms of what people anticipate happening? Well, on October 7th, obviously, uh, Israel was under attack. And the extent of this, uh, the cruelty of it, uh, is such that it will have to retaliate. What have we have seen so far is um, air force in over Gaza uh, and the Israelis being as careful as they can be to warn the population and to ask them to essentially evacuate Gaza City and move uh, to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Um, as we said, it has been agreed uh, by Israel to have humanitarian corridors so these people uh, won't be uh, hurt and to have uh, some sort of assistance or aid from Egypt. All this, we should say, happening as uh, 199 Israeli hostages held by Hamas have still not seen any uh, representative of an international uh, community, of the Red Cross, anyone checking on these people, because some of them we know have been wounded. And as you said, Israel and the world essentially is waiting for some sort of larger offensive in Gaza. We don't know when that will happen. And obviously, the, this, everyone has been waiting for the president uh, and his visit. So nothing happened before he was here or during his visit. But this is imminent. This will happen some way, in one way or another, very, very soon. I don't have the battle plans, as I shouldn't uh, indeed have them. And uh, obviously, we are going to see a larger offensive of Israel uh, in, in uh, Gaza. Um, for me, it's very obvious. Uh, we have seen the way that this has been portrayed uh, in the world media, and I assume we will talk about this uh, at length later, but this is Israel defending itself. This is Israel making sure that none of what we have seen um, and still seeing it will happen again. Just on the aid, the humanitarian aid uh, and the bargain that was struck with Joe Biden for mm -hmm. an initial limited consignment of aid from the Egyptian side to mm -hmm. be allowed through the crossing in Israel, imposing this condition that if any of it at all is purloined by Hamas, then that stops and those are the conditions and so on. Mm -hmm. Just to explain, and not your view, but the, for what the Israel government position is on this specific question, which is a big part of the Israeli position is that Hamas are not the same as the Palestinian people. These are different things. Our issue, say the Israeli government, is with Hamas, the people who perpetrated the sadistic and uh, wicked massacres of the 7th of October. Our, our grievance, our issue is not with the Palestinian people. What then is the rationale that Israel would be advancing for the initial imposition of the blockade that did keep out food and 
water and medicine. I get the thing about fuel because Hamas can use that. That's dual use, so-called. Mm-hmm. Hamas might use that for its so-called military operations. But because this has become such an issue in terms of the uh, public diplomacy, the case Israel is making, where people around the world are saying it's a humanitarian disaster that's unfolding, mm-hmm. just from its own point of view, why did what, what you know Yoav Gallant when he announced it? What's the thinking behind saying we don't want to even let in food, water, or medicine, and that Biden had to negotiate that? But, but we are, we are in, in terms I mean, of the fight. Yeah. No, but now yes. But I'm saying until now. Why was it important to Israel to say that stuff couldn't get through? I think there's a misunderstanding uh, at the heart of this conversation because Israel isn't an occupier in Gaza. It left uh, the Gaza Strip uh, in 2005, dismantled settlements. And ever since, yes, the border has been closed, so has the border in Egypt. And it's important to say that because Hamas, that took control in 2007, declared war on Israel. This is the situation we are in, and it's important to understand that. Why am I saying that? Because Israel in the past two years allowed for 20,000 Palestinian workers to come from Gaza to uh, the southern part of Israel. These people, we now know, use that opportunity to collect intelligence, to send it back to uh, the Hamas command, and then to come back, some of them, on Saturday, October 7th, and to massacre Israelis. And there was one time, one time during these 10 days in which Egypt attempted to bring in uh, food and water, and Israel said no. It said no because there were 199 hostages held, and no one knows what uh, what happened to them. But then Israel allowed for this and now is allowing for it. So, and, and of course, if it's not clear from this, the, 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 just the trauma that, that this country is feeling and, and, and the first initial shock. So I think that a lot has been made of this that is, uh, again, rooted in misunderstanding. And I think that the defense echelon in this country realizes that it is not uh, in Israel's interest to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza. This is not a war between Israel and the Palestinian people. It's a war between Israel and Hamas. And the more uh, Israel, you know, safeguards the, the, the Palestinian population, it will be easier for Israel to fight this war. One just tiny thing, because this goes to that thing of how things look inside outside, which is one of my pet themes in our conversations. I know that Israel says absolutely adamantly, we are no longer occupiers in Gaza because of disengagement. In terms of UN, international law, EU, Israel is, even if technically, regarded still as the occupying power because of controlling access in and out legally. On one it still side. Counts, On it one still side. counts as the occupied okay. Palestine, Palestinian territories. And therefore, under international law, it is obliged and required to ensure that food and water get through. I don't think people were thinking Israel should send care packages over. Right. I think they were thinking if there's aid coming through from Egypt, Israel should allow. But right. just on and that, it, again, right, I don't, we've, got, we've gone over it so. Okay. Okay. We've gone over it so many times. I just wanted on that simple point about the legal status of the territory, just to clarify that. And um, and Joe Biden said when he was travelling back that his number one priority was getting that um, movement on that. And there is now movement. I mean, it's just twenty trucks in the first wave uh, that will go through that Rafah crossing. So I'm not sure how much food and medicine can be on there, but we'll see what happens. And his message was very clear that Hamas, if they lay a finger on it, 
it will stop. Um, and, but no, I think that's very, that makes a lot of sense how you've explained it. But, you know, it has become the, the center of the sort of global conversation about this to an extent that has absolutely, you know, distressed and infuriated Jews around the world, supporters of Israel, because they make the point you make, which is, well, what about the lack of signs of proof of life and contact and videos of our hostages? And even saying, what about the actual event of the 7th of October? Instead, everyone's uh, focused on this, but the uh, reality is um, that is now the focus. People concerned about a, a, you know, a large population uh, deprived of food and water, but there does seem to be change in that. And it was right into that context, that um, you know, media narrative, global media narrative, that the incident came on Tuesday night, in which immediately on the world's big, you know, dominant English language media, the BBC, the New York Times, elsewhere, reports, headlines that said um, hundreds of Palestinians killed in uh, Israeli strike on hospital say Palestinian officials. That was the first sort of headline, the first iteration. There'd been a blast at the Al-Akhli uh, Arab Baptist Hospital in Gaza, and reports, the initial reports cited the Gaza Health Ministry as saying 500 Palestinians were dead within minutes, really, but, you know, hours. That evening, there were riots and protests in the West Bank, in Ramallah, across the Arab world, several Arab capitals, also in Istanbul, in Turkey, attacks on the Israeli consulate, believing that Israel and its air force had struck a hospital and killed hundreds in that attack. But almost at the same time, very, very quickly, a counter-narrative was emerging, which would later be backed and vindicated by Joe Biden and by the American authorities saying, no, completely wrong. This was a misfired Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket uh, that had landed on their own side and in effect on their own people, and big questions about the number killed. But by then, the narrative had gone around the world, and in a way, the damage was done. I mean, so much to say about this in terms of the media and how it operates and the pre preconceptions about Israel and what it's what it could do. Um, it was all unfolding in sort of real time, but obviously having a very direct impact right where you were. When we first saw this headline, I think you read it, I'll read it from the New York Times, Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Which, of course, this is not only the headline of the most important uh, newspaper in the world, it's also uh, in everyone's iPhones, notifications immediately. And as you said, the uh, ripple effect of this was felt immediately, not only in mobs surrounding uh, the American embassy in Beirut or the Israeli embassy in Jordan and in other places. And not only in an attempt to, uh, I think, throw a firebomb at a synagogue in Berlin, but also and most importantly in the fact that King Abdullah of Jordan canceled the very important summit he had planned with President Biden, the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, and the president of Egypt, Assisi. Now, why is this important? Because this should have been the important coalition to stand against Hamas and to discuss what the future of Israel and the particularly Gaza should be. Now, what I'm saying about all this is that a lie creates damage. If you don't check facts, this is what happens. Now, even in this headline, the fact that 
official, it says Palestinians say, there are no Palestinian officials in Gaza that aren't Hamas. So the least you can do, the least you can do is say that the terror organization, I'm sorry, we don't use terror, I don't want to insult them, but the organization that is behind perpetrating this massacre is saying something, right, is part of this conflict, and it is saying something. And, and essentially, right, the, the same people who furiously debate uh, Israeli claims accept anything Hamas has to say with no skepticism, no debate, continue th- to think they're, you know, moral and ethical. I, I'm going to pause here and say something. Look, I don't spend my life, you know, pointing out or counting the ways the world, the media and the international media are biased against Israel. If we'd done that, we should have started a a, a spinoff podcast, right? Called, I don't know, Two Jews Have the Blues. We're not going to do that. But in this case, it is very important because, again, if you don't check your facts, damage occurs here. In this case, that is what happened. So again, as you said, the Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson came out, had, I don't know, a like he was Daniel Kaffian, a few good men. He had this evidence. It looks very clear, including recordings of Hamas operatives discussing this. It looks very clear like this was a missile, a missile rocket from Palestinian Jihad. But, but of course it plays to what the world is ready to believe. And again, the fact that we are a mere less than two weeks into this But the first thing we discussed is the fact that the world is asking questions, has shifted back to its comfortable narratives, right, about Israel being the bad guy, Palestinians being the good guys, and is asking questions about the uh, humanitarian aid and moving its focus from what happened here on October 7th. So much to say about this episode. Um, First, I think you're uh, absolutely right about this point about Palestinian officials. This is something that really... And the world's media needs to really think about because the phrase that particularly always I think on is the Gaza Health Ministry, which is a brilliant bit of sort of branding in a way. Because when British people hear that, they think of the National Health Service, one of the most trusted institutions in the country. People think of the Red Cross or Médecins Sans Frontier, that kind of thing. And obviously, as you say, it's Hamas, and they should say Hamas. And then you think about other media reporting and how. There is no way that if there had been a blast in, you know, Mosul or Raqqa, it would have said, you know, hundreds said ISIS say. People just didn't think you considered them a source mm. uh, that could be legitimately quoted. And I do think that what, what October 7th does is to confirm the ISIS-ification of mm. Hamas, that they are capable of this kind of killing. And I'm not sure yet newsrooms are fully sort of caught up with that new reality if they are saying officials, Gaza Health Ministry, as if it's a reliable institution. It seems uh, like the rest of the world has picked up. I mean, leaders around the world have. Rishi Sun, Right. I mean, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who's now in Israel, have. saying you should believe Hamas like you believe Putin. Um, you know, yeah. you have that and you have support in Israel, but you don't have media organizations doing that. No, so there's a delay there. The second thing is that when Israel comes forward and says, look, this definitely wasn't us, I'm afraid lots of newsrooms are a bit sceptical about that too, because this is the case that came up, and we're not going to relitigate it, but the example that's mentioned is the case of the Palestinian-American journalist, Shirin Abu Akleh. The initial account from the IDF was, no, it was not us. She was killed by Palestinian stray fire. And in the end, the Israeli authorities have said, okay, 
I'm afraid that was us. It was a mistake, but it was us. So that shift means that people are skeptical about that. I'm sure they're the, only the, biased against Israel because of the Shirin Abu Akhla story. No, I mean, the point is that the, the Israeli account, the initial Israeli response has not always been, and there are other cases, but let me just get onto the bit that I wanted to say, which was how interesting it was that straight away, this so-called uh, OSINT, open source in intelligence, these various bloggers and others, were able very, very quickly to get to the bottom of this. And they did so with the pictures that are out there. And there's, um, you know, there was a very good thread by a journalist at the Financial Times saying newsrooms need to catch up with this because the actual, you know, video footage and tracking and other things was out there very quickly and was able to put an account. You don't have to, in other words, say, we're not going to believe that side. We're always going to believe this side or vice versa. There is other evidence that's out there that would have enabled newsrooms very quickly to come to, in the end, what seems to be the accurate version. And before then, you can just say, we don't know. And that's the thing that I think there has to be the big lesson from this. You know, it was often taught in journalism, newsrooms that, or in, you know, to journalists, better to be uh, second and right than first and wrong. And I think some, in this particular conflict, which is among many other things, an information war, you need to have that in mind. And I think I do get why Israelis feel you do not extend credulity to Putin. You didn't extend it to ISIS. Why are you extending it to Hamas? I think that is a legitimate question to ask. Look at I the, do think it... Yeah. The amazing thing is that they would buy anything Hamas tells them but when Israel comes with a very organized file of proof, they say the BBC cannot verify. And that is the thing. The sin here is not the running with the story. It's the attribution. It is accepting something that a party to the conflict, I'm not even saying perpetrators of a massacre, party to the conflict is saying, acting like it's gospel truth, right? Without informing the viewers or the readers that this is where this is coming from. And, you know, this it's a really interesting thing. I, I saw the, uh, the IDF spokesperson, uh, Daniel Hagari, was doing a very good job under impossible situations. And he was talking to the international media, and it, there's a daily briefing in Hebrew. And I watched the daily briefing in English. It was on air, actually, because it was right before Biden's visit. And it was so interesting to me because, I mean, you have been trying to tell me, you, Jonathan, for a while, uh, how the world uh, sees Israel. I always get upset at you. It's not fair. It's not your fault. But I was looking at, at what they say. And the first question they asked him was CNN. And he was giving this pile of evidence. And they said, why should we believe you? And they actually mentioned the Shirin Abu Akhla thing. And I, I, I remember thinking to myself, they would never ask Hamas, why should we believe you? I mean, that is the amazing thing. And obviously, it's indicative of how this the world waited, almost waited for the story of the hospital, because they felt so uncomfortable with the fact that suddenly Israel is the victim and Hamas is the bad guy. And they didn't know what to do with themselves. So they waited for a story to turn around the narrative and go back to talking about humanitarian aid for the Palestinians while Israel is still traumatized, wounded, confused, and uncertain about what happened to it. All right. Well, we did promise and we are going to make good on our promise to hear some other voices besides you and me, Yonit, um, for this week's episode. And we did encourage, we did a call out for people to send 
their thoughts and questions via voice note to us and we've got a whole lot and they're really really interesting let's just hear this very first one i think it speaks to the question of what might be coming next and what actually a fight to eradicate hamas as a fighting force might entail so here we go um this is from daniel oppenheimer my question is this the debate about the israeli response always seems to be couched in ethical terms but surely that's not the point Let's put ethics entirely to one side and say that, okay, Israel can do whatever it wants. Practically, what does it mean to say you're going to destroy Hamas? How do you do it? If you've got uh, IDF soldiers going house to house with membership lists and putting bullets in the heads of the people whose names match the list, the point is it's not as if we haven't had years and years of tough blows against Hamas and targeted killings of their leaders, and yet... There the organization is still there. So how, in practice, could one actually destroy Hamas? I think that is a very important question. And let's try and break that down. What does it mean when Israel is saying we will destroy Hamas? Hamas's military wing, to the extent that we're still making that distinction between the political wing and the military one, as the Dinar Qassam Brigades, they have 25,000 terrorists. The elite commando unit, uh, the Nukba, right? Those are the ones who perpetrated um, the massacre uh, and the butchering of, of, of Israelis. There are a few thousand. So the terrorist apparatus needs to be countered, fought as effectively as possible, right? I mean, these are the people that, as I said, perpetrated this. Uh, they should be eradicated. Israel needs to protect itself. I think that's pretty simple. I hope that's pretty simple. The problem here is, of course, more complicated. Even if you do do that to eradicate uh, Hamas physically to the extent that you can doesn't eradicate the idea. That is obviously impossible. This Daesh style ideology um, to completely erase it is a problem. And we need to remind people that the Palestinians in Gaza voted for Hamas in 2007 uh, when Hamas declared war on Israel and took over uh, the Gaza Strip. That is why we are in this predicament uh, to begin with. If you had polled, and you do, uh, there are polls made uh, in the West Bank, uh, Hamas is incredibly popular there too as well. Maybe that is connected to why there aren't any elections in the Palestinian Authority. So even if Israel does manage to win this on the military level, what do you do with that after is a huge question that I'm not sure that we uh, can answer at this point. Yeah, I feel the same uh, inability in a way to give a kind of blanket clear answer to that because, uh, as you say, it's in some ways an idea, it's an ideology. Uh, I did notice that the very first wave of statements from Israeli officials was talked about uh, removing Hamas, wiping it off the face of the earth, and then it changed to eradicate Hamas as a fighting force. In other words, a recognition that something of Hamas will remain. It will still exist, uh, even at the, just the level of an idea, because you cannot immediately destroy that. And as you say, it has put down deep political roots in both places, in Gaza and in the West Bank. And, you know, for a long while, people used to talk about it functioning as a kind of shadow welfare state and providing for people local services. Since then, actually, I think that's, I had conversations with Palestinians this week who were telling me that it's much more now a story of corruption, that they have been, you know, they are a corrupt organization in Gaza, as well as being, you know, horribly authoritarian. This is to their own people. 
and that the era when they were running against Fatah are offering themselves as the clean, untainted, uncorrupt alternative, well, they have themselves been corrupted. So who knows whether that electoral verdict of, of 15 plus years ago still stands, uh, despite what you say about the polls. But no, I don't think they can do it. And I, I do and myself wrestle with the question Daniel Oppenheimer asks, you know, what does it actually mean? And will it be essentially just taking uh, out commanders and a few command positions and top leaders because that has happened before and what you said to to me last week you know was this isn't just another one of those rounds where they do that this isn't another skirmish this is much more serious than that and yet actually when it comes to the remedy the action i don't know quite how it becomes you know on a much bigger plane um there are some lots of questions about what might come Next, and first one comes from Gary Shavit in Ramat Gan. My concern is what will happen after the fighting stops. Let's say they at least manage to end the Hamas control of Gaza. What comes after that? Who does the government, even with Benny Gantz, expect to take over the administration there? The Islamic Jihad? Are they planning on handing Gaza over to Abu Mazen? I can't see Ben Revere and Smotrich or even the crew members agreeing to that. Return to Israeli authority. I'm 72 years old and they even did reserve duty in Gaza once. So I remember how bad it was for both sides. It seems to be just another round of revenge and counter revenge. I've only been listening to your podcast for a short while, but I think you two are doing a great job. And there is actually a related question. This is from Zina. Hi, Yonid and Jonathan. I hope you guys are staying safe. My question is once Hamas gets destroyed and there becomes a power vacuum in Gaza, who do you think will um, rise up to lead them? And do you even think that those leaders will um, want to have peace with Israel? So in, way, in a way, Yoni, it's both, both the variations of the same question. So what are you hearing? What are you thinking? Look, it's essentially the question of, okay, the United States toppled Saddam, then what? Um, because even if this is uh, successful, and, and you have to understand the state of mind of Israelis, right, who thought they were relatively safe and see all of these atrocities that happened to them in their homes. So a lot of them are just saying, first, let's kill Hitler, then we'll see. Okay, that is the sort of state of mind. And so I think it is important for the leadership to know what the end game is. I'm not sure they do. These are the options, essentially. One is hand it over to the Palestinian Authority, right? Once you're done, if you indeed topple Hamas's leadership, hand it over. Now, who will be the Palestinian leader who will ride into Gaza on Israeli tanks, metaphorically? Uh, answer, short answer, no one. So that is complicated. And obviously, it's internally complicated for uh, this this specific Israeli government. There are all kinds of ideas floating around the UN, uh, NATO, you know, or let's see what the UN is doing in uh, now in the southern part of Lebanon, uh, to understand that that is probably not the best uh, case. And of course, there is that kind of option that only very extreme parts of this coalition are saying out loud at this uh, moment, and that is that Israel reoccupies Gaza. Now, we have to say no one in the security echelon, in the de defense establishment, or actually even main ministers in the government are saying that this is the, the plan. But there have been voices like that. Obviously, uh, Israel won't go ahead with it. But, you know, my attempt to try and answer this question really leads to 
no one really knows. It is a deep, uh, disturbing question. But it is clear that Israel can't continue to live with this kind of situation on its border. Yeah. Um, I think your mention of Saddam is really interesting, again, with Joe Biden's words ringing in my ears, his warning about remembering what America did and how it too thought, look, get rid of, and then we'll deal with the consequences later. And in a way that didn't work out so well, because the vacuum that was left after Saddam did make way for ISIS and Al-Qaeda, then ISIS and so on. So there's a warning there. I would love to believe that the people in, who are in the room, in that inner war cabinet, do have a plan. I'm not sure they do. I share your question mark there, uh, that they have a plan. The only other scenario I've heard that you didn't mention um, was the one I think floated, Yuval Noah Harari floated, was the idea of a some kind of consortium of Egypt, Jordan, the United Arab Emirates, some of their money, and Morocco. Uh, in other words, Arab countries taking over some kind of stewardship, custodianship in the short term. The short term can very easily trouble with the short term. It very quickly becomes the long term. All kind, you know, It's only an idea, but it just, to me, had a tiny bit more logic than NATO and so on, because the idea of, given the you know history, the idea of non-Muslim, European or white countries, you know, occupying not a great look. Arab countries taking taking sort of temporary stewardship may be more palatable. But as you say, we don't know. They don't know. These are just ideas that are being floated. So this is a question from Almog. Let's hear it. Hey, Anit. Hey, Jonathan. My name is Almog. Many families that live near the border with Gaza will probably not return. The government and the IDF promise that Gaza will not look the same and that things will change drastically. Do you think that this is actually the case? And what will this part of Israel look like after the war ends, in your opinion? I read into this question, by the way, that we're talking really about, in some ways, the southern part of Israel with borders Gaza, those kibbutzim, whether they're going to be rebuilt, whether anyone will want to live in those areas in future. You've been, Yonit, down in that part of the country in the last week, reporting, talking to survivors, talking to families. I mean, what's your sense of whether the people will be able to live again in those parts of parts of Israel? The interesting thing about it is that when you talk to the parents, right, the 40, 50-year-olds, they'll all tell you that they want to go back, that this is their home, that that is where they built their home. And when you talk to the children, most of them say, I'm never going back there. And I can understand that because what they have been through uh, is something that is really so horrendous, I think we should maybe make up some new words to describe it. If ever they would return, what would probably happen, maybe should have happened, is a demilitarized zone. The Any logic that says that you will have 700 meters between people um, who tried to kill you and succeeded tragically, and kibbutzim, is not uh, sustainable anymore. So that will have to happen. Um, you know, there's all kinds of talk about Egypt then giving uh, the Gazan people uh, some sort of compensation in territory or, or something like that. But the, the point is that you will have a demilitarized zone. That is for sure. Israel and the government will have to pour in a lot of money uh, to rehabilitate the area. It is uh, full of, you know, still signs of, of horror and death. 
and hopefully something, uh, you know, I know this is utopia talk, but something, if there would ever be a normal leadership in, in Gaza, then, of course, that option that you mentioned of other countries, Arab countries, other countries, countries that would pour in money, like a Marshall Plan to, to, to actually rehabilitate the, the Gaza Strip. That is, you know, again, this sounds like um, a very far away plan, but that is what can happen. Very struck by you talking about that difference between the younger residents and the older ones. Uh, you know, we've said before, we said it in the very first podcast we did about this, but the extent to which this was a, a horror that particularly engulfed the young, I keep coming back to that because of the music festival, the Supernova Music Festival, 260 young people, and plenty, many of the people in the kibbutzim and elsewhere, you know, were young. And this is... It's what it's going to be a generational marker on that group of film, that general, on that cohort of young people. I want to tell you something about that because the people who were murdered in these kibbutzim were peaceniks. These are people who believed in peace. I met a kid, 16 year old Rotem Matias, this week from Cholit. His parents died trying to save him, they actually protected him and shielded him. Uh, he hid under their dead bodies for hours. They are two people who love music and who set up a school, an Arab Jewish school in Beersheba. You have videos of them singing in Hebrew and in Arabic. These are people who believed in peace. Um, Shlomi and Shachar, uh, Matias, and they were murdered. And he said to me, uh, when we talked, he said, I want you to know that after the terrorists shot my parents, they laughed. You hear this story. You hear stories about, you know, Eyal Waldman, who's a high-tech businessman in Israel, uh, who worked tirelessly to set up a high-tech industry in Ramallah, in Ruabi, in Gaza. And his daughter was murdered in the party itself, his daughter Daniel. These are people who believed in peace. This is who the terrorists killed. When you kill children and when you do, when you kill parents in front of their children. What you are doing is sowing hate for decades and for centuries. This is what Hamas has always done. It's done it in the 90s after the Oslo Accords were signed. It, done it did it in the uh, 2000 after the Camp David uh, uh, summit. This is what they have always been doing. And what saddens me is after Israel rises from this, from these ashes, and it will, it will, what is left from these people who wanted peace and who, who worked for it, what is left from them? What is left for them? That is the saddest part of this. Uh, I agree. Um, and many of the individual stories, they are exactly the people who did. Uh, and were often ostracized, and by fellow Israelis who called them, you know, naive or worse, for they, these coexistence and outreach efforts. And many of them are the ones, including taken hostage, uh, Vivian Silver, just to take one name, big, big time peacenik, now an older woman, now a hostage in Gaza. Let's hear this question from Alan in the UK. I heard on last week's podcast from Yonit that the current war does not represent an existential threat to Israel. But with Iran, Hezbollah, and potentially Syria all circling, how is this so? Well, <laughs> you know, that is, it's interesting what Alan is saying, because when we uh, 
finished recording that episode. It was the first episode right after it happened. We'd recorded it on Sunday after the, it was 8th of October. And I said that the difference between this and Yom Kippur, in some aspects it's worse, but the difference is that Israel is not under existential threat. And I kept thinking about that line after. I think I even told you that. I, I mean, look, the doomsday scenario that a lot of Israelis are sort of contemplating, right, or thinking, wait a minute, but what if we have Hamas uh, doing this in the south, Hezbollah, much stronger organization, terror organization doing this in the north, anything happening from uh, the West Bank, and of course, the issue of what happened, what we saw in Guardian of the Walls, where there were internal strife between Arab Israelis uh, inside the Green Line. What if all this happens together? So, I, I mean, it's a question. I'm not saying it isn't, but I think that we should remember one, th two things, actually. One is Israel is still a very, you know, powerful military force. It has been hurt very badly, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a strong force. And, of course, it has the backing of the United States. So I would take that into consideration when we discuss what is, obviously, Israel is, is traumatized by what happened. Um, but I think that these are two things that are important to remember. Yeah, and I think we did. We talked about the presence of two aircraft carriers, despite the record they're not there purely for show. And if that kind of nightmare scenario were to unfold, then I think they would um, step in, which itself would be obviously the most enormous escalation. Should we hear um, a next question from Jacob? Hi, Jonathan, you're Nit. Uh, I've listened to you guys for a long time and I really love your show. Uh, my question is the following. Even though uh, peace seems so far away right now, could this be an opportunity to, you know, change the landscape? Uh, and what role are are the Palestinian Authority going to play in this? Um, because you know, if we if Israel is seeking to root out Hamas, surely uh, America, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Israel are all discussing what is to be done uh, going forward. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. The most sort of hopeful thing I could ever come up with on this whole nightmare was purely chronological, which was the Yom Kippur War in 1973 was followed four years later in 1977 by Anwar Sadat of Egypt in Israel, in Jerusalem. And so what a turnaround. I mean, the situations are obviously completely different. I don't have to go through all the reasons and elements why they're, they're not uh, the same. But... The things I would take for, as potential grounds for hope for what Jacob is saying. One is the, the sentiment you expressed before, Yoni, which is people feeling as if we just cannot go back to this. We can't do another round, another round. This is untenable. This is unsustainable. That can lead you in one direction, which says, therefore, we have to eradicate Hamas and wipe them off the face of the earth. The other is to say something else has to change, that this paradigm of... So living side by side, this uh, enclave uh, controlled by Hamas, it's not worked, and it's just it's not it's not a viable option any longer for all the reasons that we now know. And therefore, there has to be something different. And and Jacob mentioned the other in, you know in other states, the logic of the Abraham Accords and others was you could shrink the conflict, you could actually make deals with neighbors and skip over the Palestinian question. And in a way, I think we are just out of that. That paradigm has come apart. Obviously, there has to be some reckoning with this aspect of it, which is in, you know, the heart of the conflict for 100 plus years. And that has to be now reckoned with. I don't see anyone 
in the Israeli leadership or Palestinian leadership who is ready for that or able to even contemplate it. But the notion that there has to be some political dimension to this conflict, it cannot be solved militarily. Militarily might be part of it. It may be necessary, but it won't be sufficient. I don't know whether that means, as Jacob's asking, is it an opportunity to change the landscape? But the landscape has changed. And, you know, at some point, the leadership on both sides will have to reckon with that. First of all, I, I would want to just say that uh, I uh, I think our listeners are very intelligent people with very good questions, and I like that they like our podcast. We haven't said that so far, so I'll just say that, just to lighten the mood a little bit. Look, I think that there is a misunderstanding here between the fact that there has been an ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians and the fact that this is pure evil, that something has to be done here. So there will be some sort of military response to what Hamas did, because Israel has to defend itself. That has to be said. Again, this thing, this this massacre created a tectonic shift that I don't know if we know yet where the chips will fall on this. Um, as I said, the, the dispiriting and huge tragedy of it is that these people targeted, tortured, and murdered the people who really hoped and worked for peace. So what will be different in the societies and what will change? You know, I just need to mention maybe that as an Israeli, I'm still waiting for the Palestinian Authority to condemn what happened. It still hasn't. Uh, That is part of what Joe Biden tried to do during his visit here, uh, to get Abu Mazen, the president of the Palestinian Authority, to say something about this. So I don't know about, it's, it's, it's definite that these huge traumas change societies. That is definite. Where is this going? Where is this heading is a question. You're right about the fact that Israel thought it could circumvent the Palestinian problem. The biggest uh, representative of that opinion was, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu, who thought the, the right policy would be to placate Hamas with money coming in from Qatar, keep them as quiet as possible, and then not having to deal with the Palestinian Authority. And he's not the only one who thought that, by the way. I think a lot of people in the defense echelon thought, thought that as well. That has obviously exploded in our faces. But what that will change, I really don't know. I think we should have called this uh, session more questions and questions than questions and answers, because it feels like we have more of those. It, it relates, actually, to the question that we've got next, which is comes from Dan Rinsler. Notwithstanding Israel's deeply divided society, right up to the eve of war, accepting there is now broad societal commitment of we're all in this together, and the war cabinet is broadly robust. Is it though desirable, realistic and credible for Israel to prosecute this war without a clear leadership change? Mindful of World War II historical precedent, Churchill becoming Prime Minister, with Chamberlain being reduced to member of the War Cabinet. We like the British references. (laughs) We like the British references, but I have to say to Dan, I've been wondering about this myself. Mm. I mean, lots of people, I've been speaking to people all the time since this happened, lots of people saying, look, this is a question for later. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way that Netanyahu really, surely, can continue when on his watch, this most vicious and brutal of attacks happened. For that reason alone, uh, he will have to go. The question in my mind a bit is, well, why wait? Because if you believe this person made a strategic error of of lethal proportions, for partly the reasons you were talking about before about the calculation about Hamas, but whatever it was that led to the country being vulnerable to this attack, 
surely if you think that person was in any way culpable for that, you cannot entrust the conduct of the response to that same person if you think they are not capable of it. So even putting aside the sort of partisan rows of the last eight months and judicial overhaul, just on that, if you think they were you know, culpable for this day of horror on the 7th of October, why would you think they're the right person to lead the response? I'm sort of half surprised that there isn't more of that in the political conversation in Israel. But you know, you tell me, Yonit, because I know it's happening at the edges and there's commentators and columnists and everyone else sort of beginning to say it. You told us last week about poll numbers that are very bad for Netanyahu. But are, is anybody saying, you know, before we go in almost, change the captain? We need to say that the military leadership, meaning the IDF chief of staff, Herzi Alevi, the head of military intelligence, Aaron Khaliva, and the uh, head of Shin Bet, Ronen Bar, have all said that they are that they take responsibility for what happened, for the failure of intelligence uh, that led to this attack. It is pretty clear that when this is over, Israel is now fighting war. So no one's demanding them to resign. But it's pretty clear that then when this is over, uh, they will, because that is what responsible uh, people do. Benjamin Netanyahu has been very clear on not saying anything in that vicinity. He sees it, and I'm trying to just say what his psyche is, he sees it as a fault of the military and of the intelligence community. And it is not in any way a fault of his own that for something between 8 and 12 and even 30 hours, people were besieged and conquered by Hamas and nothing was done to help them. He doesn't see this as his issue in any way. And he will fight against anyone who says that it is. So that is his state of mind. I think that that will change because as I told you, there are there are not a lot of questions, especially asked about the intelligence, but there are more and more questions about his conduct and his policies. Um, and I think that there will be growing rage as time passes. As I said, there are already polls uh, in that regard right now. Uh, but no, there aren't. Again, Israel is has a coalition government. It needs to be toppled in one way, and that is by the Knesset. He still has a coalition, 64. I will add to that the Benny Kanz's party, the National Unity Party that joined his coalition. So it doesn't look like he will neither resigned or be uh, uh, toppled at this moment. Well, that relates in a way to the national mood in the country. And I think we have a question on that from Sophia. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what uh, just it's been like in Israel in the last week. You know, you've, we've been seeing some very incredible photos of people, you know, coming together, donating blood, bringing supplies to soldiers. Um, I wonder if you could give us an idea of what, what that sense of community is like right now in Israel. I want to thank Sophia for that question, because I think if there's any ray of light in this total darkness, it is the way that Israeli society has come together. Remember, we were so fractured before uh, in the shadow of the uh, judicial overhaul. And it, we had this question, these questions about whether Israeli society could still you know, live together. And now it's so clear that if there's one thing that Hamas did was bring us all together. You, you're you seeing scenes that, you know, I never imagined. I can just tell you I was in uh, Kibbutz and Gedi this week. It's on the west of the Dead Sea. And uh, this is the place that um, the refugees from Cholit, a kibbutz that 
you know, the terrorists came into, that, that is where they are living now. And you see this whole place coming together to help them. So they're, the young kids are helping them with babysitting their kids. And there's a store that they kind of built for them to, that they can come and take anything they'd like from clothes to food. You know, it's just a community that has adopted another community that has been hurt so badly. And you see this all through the country, the uh, actual apparatus of um, brothers and sisters in arms that were the sort of backbone of the protest movement now sort of shifted to go through all of these communities to see what they need to help them out, contributions coming in, people, you know, kind of, again, helping in any way that they can. These are beautiful moments for this country, not talking even about, you know, the tens of thousands of people uh, mobilizing and enlisting and, and being reservists in the military. This is really, uh, in that regard, it is, it is our finest hour. Very good. Okay, so our next question is from Jonathan Shalom. Do you think that now, after the horrific events that happened last week in Israel, the opinions of Jews in diaspora regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are going to change in any way? Because we know that there's this constant tension between Israelis and diaspora Jews in terms of having or, or not having a partner for peace on the other side. Um, is this tension, in your opinion, going to heighten? Is it going to go away? Thank you. Well, it, you know, in a way, this podcast exists, doesn't it, for that relationship and the Israel-Dias relationship. When you and I started doing this, Yoni, our concern in a way was that the two were not really talking to each other at all. There was no real place for them to do it. And we now have a place, and that is this podcast. As always with Jewish things, there's two, two completely contradictory things are possible at once. On the one hand, there is an extraordinary coming together. I mean, a moment of solid so connectedness is the word I would use more than solidarity you know so many times we've talked on the podcast with various of our guests in the United States about how a new generation cares much less about Israel's less involved quietly walking away you wouldn't have known that from the last 10 days the whole of the Jewish world feels like we've gone through an experience together a collective trauma obviously felt first and centrally by uh, Israelis who are you know, directly in it. But there has been this, you know, sense of shared grieving. And I, I do feel a deep connectedness from Jews in America and Britain and France and Israel, that we're all following the same news, we're all sharing in it. But I think Jonathan does put his finger on where there could be a diverging. And in a way, look, you know, in our very particular way, and you know, you and I have been airing it that we do inevitably see things differently. And the diaspora Jews, because they are exposed to the conversation about Israel outside Israel, hear something different and react to it differently. And I think there is this, you know, urge for there to be something different and for there to be some kind of change. And you may hear that more, you know, more loudly. And that is not because... British, you know, or diaspora Jews don't care about what goes on in Israel. It's because they really do care and because they're really affected by it. I mean, you know, what, the link now between events on the ground in Israel and the knock-on effect on diaspora is now so immediate. You know, we touched on it earlier that that story since debunked about the, you know, the event of the hospital, the explosion at the hospital, it's it's a matter of two hours before there is a firebomb on a synagogue in Berlin. You know, we're in this thing. 
I'm a governor of a Jewish school where I live. You know, there I'm getting notes and emails every day about security alerts for the kids in the school. I don't pretend it's the same as what you and your fellow citizens in Israel are going through your need, but we're in this somehow. And the one contribution I've always thought that can happen is to make a virtue of the sum of the distance. Because that bit that, you know, we've gone back to several times where Joe Biden is saying, I know it's hard, but try and be deliberate rather than enraged, the two words he used. I think it's easier for for people who are some distance away, who are not living with it hour by hour. And therefore, that can be maybe helpful. I know the response often, because I hear it so often, of Israelis will be, you know, you don't live here, you're in an armchair in London, it's very easy for you. That That's one way we can go. Or the other way we can go is to say we're somehow in this. And therefore, what you know the the perspective of Jews who care about Israel, who love it, who feel bound up with it, may be helpful, and that's you know part of the conversation I think that will go ahead. The interesting thing is, I have never once thought to say to you what you just quoted. What do you understand? You're sitting there. I completely understand that we are in this together. Different volumes, obviously, but we're in this together. It has never been clearer than this past week and a half because this trauma that happened to us, to Israel, happened to the Jewish people. It's so clear that Israel, I think to anyone who's connected to it, obviously, means that Jews will be protected, that somewhere in the back of everyone's mind, whether they live in London or New York or Paris, They know that if they will need it, if they ever need it, it's there. And the feeling like it is vulnerable and couldn't protect Jews in their time of need is something that has a deep effect on everyone, not only us. I think for us, it's more visceral and immediate, but it isn't, you know, it's, it's, we really are in this together. I, I, I don't doubt that for a minute. Yeah. No, that's what why, in a way, we did this thing, um, because you and I both always felt that from the start, even before this moment of crisis. And even though there are people on, you know, in both our worlds, in diaspora and in Israel, who have not seen it that way, that was the thing that brought us, I think, together. Um, let's see this question from Aviad. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the following issue. Um, despite the images of uh, sheer depravity, Uh, and barbarity that the whole world witnessed during these attacks. Uh, there are abundant protests, both uh, physically and on social media, justifying what happened. Uh, these obviously appeared from uh, Arab and Muslim countries, but also from Western countries, uh, prominently in academic circles. Uh, while many people were aghast and surprised by this, uh, I really wasn't. Uh, I fear that these lies have metastasized into academia, uh, where we witness young people and their false perceptions on the conflict and the terrible events that just transpired. Uh, and I really feel that no amount of Azbara can combat something that has become so embedded in the thoughts of young people in the West. Uh, what do you think we did wrong and what we can, what can we and should we do to fight this worrying trend that, in my view, is becoming worse and worse? Well, thanks to uh, Avia for that question. I, too, was not really that surprised, um, although a little, I mean, more than a little depressed by it. Um We had, didn't we, our guest on the program a long time ago, Dara Horn, and her very brilliantly titled essay, People Love Dead Jews. 
And she was really talking about the Holocaust and Jews when they're victims of attacks on synagogues in the United States. Then they get sympathy was her, was the sort of implication of that title. What was really uh, sobering was in the 24 hours after October 7th, when really naively, I did think there would only be sympathy or at least quiet. There were people, small numbers, but vocal and noisy, who came forward to say, uh, this is your fault. And to say, this is a day of celebration. And to say that this was, in words of one speaker, you know, at a demo, uh, the, these attacks were beautiful and inspiring, even when the detail, some of the detail, not all of it, obviously, was known. So you think, okay, people don't even love dead Jews. And that's been a shock for, I think, some of the people who were least expecting that. And you mentioned uh, Yonit the Peaceniks who were living there in the southern Israel, many of whom were caught up as victims or as hostages in the horrors of the 7th of October. Um, fellow Israeli leftists have been, I think, some shocked by this. They even get, got together and issued a statement slamming colleagues, allies, people they thought were their comrades in the United States and in Europe for failing to condemn the Hamas slaughter. Big petition signed by lots of them saying, we are deeply concerned by the inadequate response from certain American European progressives. Will you call on our peers to return to a politics based on, you know, universal principles? Underneath that is a kind of heartbreak underneath those sort of petition type vocabulary. There's a heartbreak there, which is we thought you were with us. We thought you're on our side. And what we now discover is, no, actually, your your issue wasn't just this or that Israeli government. You really don't care when Israelis are massacred and butchered in front of children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children. And this whole language that's been on campus, it's been in Harvard and elsewhere, got a lot of attention, where straight away, this is only the fault of Israel and apartheid and occupation and folded into that is the current business about the the humanitarian aid in Gaza and so on. But not even lip service, in some cases, paid to the 7th of October. I do think, relating a little bit to Jonathan's question earlier about whether this is going to change opinions, I wonder if there will be a hardening and you will see some figures on the left, maybe even inside Israel, move rightward because they will say, you know what, a lot of what people on the right always said may be true, that these aren't people who are objecting to this or that government or the occupation. They really just to, you know, celebrate or, or, or can uh, be unmoved by Jewish death. And that is a really really depressing thought. I console myself that I think it's pretty marginal. I don't think it's, we're talking millions of people. I think we're talking about pretty fringe left groups, but they're in places of influence. You know, they're in some of the finest universities in the world, and they're on the streets of some important capital cities. Again, not in mass numbers, but in numbers enough to be very, very depressing and very worrying. I think that Israel needs to realize that maybe I'm being entirely optimistic and ridiculous here. Um, we have decided or felt long ago that the narrative war is lost and that we can never win it. Uh, and that I think we left the issues of Hasbara to people who didn't always necessarily know how to do it. I think that now is a time because our case is, is a pretty strong case right now. And that Hamas's ISIS 
uh, line is a very effective one. And I think that this is a good time for Israelis not to expect a lot from their government. It has disappointed them again and again for the past uh, 10 days. But to uh, collectively work at this. There have been a few people doing it very effectively. And I think that it is a good time to prove to the world, to say, this is, again, a distinct evil. It doesn't have, again, whatever you think about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, this is something else. And I think there are people who are doing it effectively, and they, they need to do it more. And I think that that actually could work. It won't change the minds of people who just hate Jews. Like, I can't you know, that will obviously not change. But I think that this, um, they left enough material that they documented to use in this regard. This is, um, in a way, not really a question. It's something more intimate than that. Let's hear this from Noga. Shalom. My name is Noga. I'm 16 years old from Israel. I live in the center of the country, so I'm not really in the war zone. Um, I've been basically glued to the news all week, and I've heard some truly horrific stories. Yesterday, I wasn't able to fall asleep until like 5 a.m. because I couldn't get rid of the feeling of guilt that I'm fine and, you know, my family and friends are safe. But there are people in this country who are innocent people just like me and you who are now having probably the worst week of their life. Either they don't know where the families are or they have been, you know, killed, murdered, or they've been kidnapped to God knows where. And it's, it really freaks me out. I, I can't shake this feeling of guilt. Like, why it's, why it's them and it's not me? And, and what I've done to deserve to get to live another day and to laugh with my friends? and to see a dumb TV show, why, why did I get to do it and they don't? What, and, 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 you know, I guess I'm recording this because I wonder, do you ever deal with the same thing? I mean, am I alone in this? Is it like legitimate to feel this way? I just really can't shake this feeling of guilt. First, I wish I could give Noga a hug. If something I've discovered in this, these past 10 days is hugs are therapeutic. <laughs> Um, I think we are all uh, going through what she's describing. Noga, you're definitely not alone in what you're feeling. You know, there's a term for this in psychology. It's called survivor's guilt. Um, and I think that we need to realize that this country is deeply, deeply traumatized and wounded. And that manifests itself in so many ways. And the way, you know, I'm not a professional. But I think the way to deal with this is to do, is to act, is to help. Um, as I said, there's such a, you know, backbone of volunteering in this country that I think that, you know, staying at home and watching the news is probably not the best antidote, said the newswoman. I think going out and trying to help in any way helps. Um, and to find your the things that comfort you and to realize again that we are wounded and to now immerse yourself in the stories of the horrors, um, again, very important to the outside world. Internally here in Israel, I think, trying to detach from that a little bit could, could help. Very good advice, I think, from you, um, Yonit. And thanks to you, Noga, for that 
Voice note, and I think I agree with everything uh, Yoni has said. I would just have two things. One is you're very brave to uh, to have articulated what you're feeling and to have said it out loud. I think a lot of people are feeling it and wouldn't have been as quite as brave to say so. And then the other thing I would just say is in a, listening to you, um, I had an immediate thought, which I hadn't thought before, which is I think on a, in a way all Jews outside Israel are feeling a version of what you're describing. That's how not alone you are. I think there is a collective survivor guilt from uh, all those Jews who weren't there in Israel to go through this with you and with other Israelis. And I think, Yoni, I even sent you a message at some point saying, I actually just feel guilty simply for being in London. And I think there will be a collective version of that. And so this is something we are, like we said just before, we're all going through this together. I think this is a collective trauma not just for israel but for the whole of the jewish people and uh, and you noga articulated it and articulated it really well we really want to thank our listeners for sending in these questions and comments i think they're excellent ones um it's always i, I said the one way to deal with what we're going through is to hang on to things that uh, are heartwarming uh so it is it is heartwarming to know that people uh, like what we're doing and and relate to it and sending in these comments. I think we should do this more often, actually, this kind of Q&A thing. Conversation with our listeners more. I agree we should, and there will be opportunities to do that. And, you know, we're sorry to those whose questions we couldn't air. So many really good ones, very affecting, and we're really grateful to all of you for doing that. Um, you know, do spread the word about Unholy, particularly now. I think lots of people, the response I get is a lot of people feel they do need it. And so if you have people in your life who are sort of looking for a steer or just a you know people who are going through all this then do recommend uh, unholy to them and we should say thank you to a few people you need we say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer Omer Primat and Rom Atik and uh, we shall meet next week Jonathan I'll see you then you need stay safe